Good morning, Pathways. So as the student ministry pastor, I felt it appropriate to remind some of you of something from the student world. So pop quiz. Yay. Um, Turn to your neighbor, and we're going to do this a couple times today to have neighbor chats. For those of you who are verbal, that's wonderful news. For those of you who are shy or nonverbal, you can just do the whole, like, I'm fine, just wave and smile and pray. It'll be good. Um, So uh, here's the pop quiz question. How many people in the Bible can you think of who are named Judas? Turn to your neighbor. You have 15 seconds. Go. I heard eight. That is way wrong. Okay. (laughs) All right, bring it back. Let's count them, shall we? So, first of all, I am indebted to people way smarter and more theologically based than I am for many parts of this message. And here's what I found in a commentary. So, all right. Uh, There's one guy named Judas who was also called Barsabbas, and he's in the middle chapters of Acts. Anyone get him? He was a prophet. He journeyed with Paul and Barnabas. He was like putting down disruption. He was a powerful man of God, and he gets no play in today's Christianity. Yeah. Hey, 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 thank you, thank you. I'll sing it, all right. What about Judas the Galilean in Acts chapter 5? He led a revolt for the Jews over the Romans. He's mentioned in Scripture. Anyone? Anyone? Your favorite person? All right. Um, this is a kind of a tricky one. There's one that's not really in Scripture, but we all know about him. Judas the Maccabean, the general who led the revolt Uh, This is how we get Hanukkah, so he's not actually in the Word of God, but you all know him from this time period, right? Anyone get Judas Maccabean? Judas? Still there. What about this one? Jesus' brother. Raise your hand. Just lie, just raise your hand. Yes, I, I knew that one. Jesus has a brother named Judas. Fascinating. In fact, he was when his family went to go get him, when they thought he was crazy, it lists all his family there. And Judas is right there. Here's a bonus question. How many disciples are named Judas? If you got 12, it's wrong. There's not, they're not. There's at least one. There's two. There are two disciples named Judas. I know, right? Like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who is this crazy guy? Because I learned the disciples' names in, in children's ministry. And the, 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 okay, one of them has like three names. Okay, Judas Iscariot, we know. But there's another disciple who goes by three different names. Like sometimes you call him Thaddeus. Sometimes you call him Jude. But his actual given name is Judas. Bonus pop quiz question. How many disciples are named Simon? There are two Simon disciples. Triple bonus question. How many disciples are named James? Twelve is wrong. (laughs) But you get a gold star for trying, thank you. Two, I find it funny that of the twelve disciples, six of them share like three names. It's like you ever have like a large family and Jesus is like, Jesus is mad, he's like calling all the disciples' names, like James, no, the other one, no, yeah, yeah, Judas. Here's the point of this. There's a bunch of Judas 
names in the Bible. Most of them were great men. How come there are no kids today named Judas? Like one guy spoiled the name forever. You don't even have to be a believer in Christianity. You're still not going to name your kid Judas. <laughs> On this day, this patriotic weekend, I don't know why, but our preaching team, we thought it's July 4th holiday. We think of all the people who have served, all the people who have sacrificed, all those who are in the process of trying to help our nation become great. And we immediately thought to, well, let's talk about traitors. So today, we are talking about one of the greatest traitors. But that word really bothers me. That we would call Judas a betrayer or a traitor. It's just, I can't wrap my head around what he actually, it's so, you'll see. I'm going to walk you through this. Welcome to my brain. It's going to be a little messy, but we'll get in this. Okay. So first of all, um, our opening passages were about the calling of the disciples. And you saw that they were ordinary men. These were just normal people doing normal jobs, everyday things. These were not special men with a capital S. They didn't walk around with a halo. They did normal things. They were us. But Jesus handpicked them. He found 12 normal guys and said, I see in you something, and I'm going to call you forward to do amazing things. It's not that they were incredibly intelligent. They weren't incredibly witty or humorous. They weren't all really tall. They weren't all like Asian awesomeness. They weren't, they were just normal guys. And so let us begin. Let us trace the path of what we know of Judas to kind of figure out what's going on here. So we start somewhere in the Bible. We'll start in Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. And I like to do this thing where I like to read in between the lines of Scripture. We don't know that these things happen, but I kind of imagine they must have, right? So in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called a meeting. And so I figure, like, how did the disciples, like, what was the system? Like, did they, like, the night before, they're checking their agendas and they're pulling up their calendars on their papyrus. And they're like, oh, look, we have a meeting tomorrow with Jesus at 10 a.m. Okay, fine. Uh, at, and maybe even Jesus, like, distributed, like, an agenda for the meeting with the disciples. Okay, at 10 o'clock, we all gather. At 10.02, we wait for Andrew, because Andrew's always late, because he's the youth pastor of the group. Um, at 10.04, Jesus takes time to look each of us in the eye meaningfully. 10.06, he starts talking, and we all start taking notes. And the passage goes like this. Jesus is telling them what he's about to ask them to do. I remember all 12 are here. Matthew chapter 10, it goes, As you go, proclaim this message, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, the disciples are writing this down. We've done that before. We can do this. They're looking around, you know, approving each other. Like, yeah, we can do this. I proclaim the message that the kingdom of what? Heaven. Heaven is near. Okay, we got that. We can do this. And the verse goes on to verse 8. Jesus looks at them. You guys got that? Here's what I want you to do next. Heal the sick. 
heal the sick. And at this point, like, Peter starts to grin a little bit because, like, this is, like, big stuff. And Peter likes big stuff. Like, I want to do this. This is, I'm, this is, guys, I got this one. I'll do this one. Don't worry about that. And, like, Jude, the other one, is like, I don't know how to do this. Like, they're getting a little nervous. Raise the dead, gentlemen. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. That's all, guys. That's it. That's all I got. And at this point, you can think of all the 12, you know, they've stopped writing. Some of them are afraid to look up because they're thinking, like, maybe Jesus is going to start laughing because... Or they're staring at Jesus like he's got, like, a third eye. Like, you want us to do what? I used to be a fisherman. What am I... Raising the dead? Casting out demons? However you read this passage, maybe they were men who stood tall and they accepted this task. And they're just like all the movies we see of like the right stuff and they're all walking slowly and like these are men of God able to do these things. Or they were like, pardon middle school goofballs, and they're all like, I don't know, like, uh, what do we do? But however you read it, you have the mighty ones that we all know about, and you have Judas. In the beginning, Judas was with these guys. There is no mention in Scripture ever that Judas failed in these tasks. There's no mention ever that he was any lesser. It's not like Jesus gave out team shirts and they all had 11 white shirts and one black shirt. There's no asterisk by his name when it comes to these ministry tasks. If Jesus submitted his application to this church to be the pastor, this man has driven out demons. This man has raised the dead in God's name. This man has cast, he has healed people you're hired. And yet we won't name a kid named Judas. No matter how many great men there have been, we label him, we call him, and I'm so confused by how far we place him. And yet he started as one of the 12, a normal guy, elevated by God to do amazing things just like any of us are called to do these things. So, turn to your neighbor. You have 60 seconds. Here's the question. What do you think Jesus and Judas' relationship was like? Was it strained? Did every time Judas see him, he just kind of looked at him sideways, like, you 11 and you. Everybody eat and you too. Did he love them fully, completely? Like, what was their relationship like? There's no scripture that tells us what it was like. So talk to your neighbor. What was it like? What do you think? 60 seconds. Jesus and Judas, what was it like?
and come to a good stopping point. So in the beginning, there's no differentiation among the disciples. They're given these incredible tasks, and to the best of our knowledge, they all did them. To the best of our knowledge, churches were planted, people were saved, the hurt were healed, the demons were cast. Judas among them. We fast forward to almost to the end, to John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And I love this next verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Scripture speaks that Jesus was not born with the full knowledge of his divinity, but he grew into it and he became mature both in his humanness and his spiritual and his divinity at the same time. And it feels like here he's in full form. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So his tying up ends. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. We know this is about two, maybe three years later after the beginning of the ministry. And the only time that we, Judas is ever mentioned in between the beginning and right now at the Last Supper is uh, the story of uh, the, the woman and the perfume, right? And depending on which gospel you read, like one woman, like the expensive perfume, she anointed Jesus' head with, with the perfume, and then the other gospel, she anoints his feet with the perfume. In either case, Judas is upset about this because Scripture labels him a thief. And he wanted that perfume money because he used to help himself as a thief. Which I find so odd. You walk with Jesus, you cast out demons, you heal the sick, and you help yourself to the money bag. Like, I cast out that demon, that, there's a little extra bonus for me, thanks. Like, that doesn't make any sense. What happened to the fellowship of the 12? I don't get this. How can you be a part of this community of men, of brothers? I see in my mind the right stuff, these men walking slowly with the wind blowing their hair and their robes, and Judas is right there with his money bag and his hand in it. It's like, that's not right. What happened in the two and a half years from casting out demons to I'm stealing how did the brothers not know? How did the rest of the disciples around them, the 72 following, how did they not know? How did he do this? We pause to say, whatever it was, it must have been done in secret, in isolation. Whatever it was, it must have lacked the true fellowship, the true community of, that we know today. Um, I uh, meet with some youth pastors on a regular basis, and I know that I am loved there and I love them. And we don't do this every time because it's just brutally awkward. But every once in a while, one of us will take a deep breath, look the other guys in the eye and say, okay, 
Let's do the questions. We all groan and like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, all right, fine. Um, And the question goes like this. What is the one thing you are desperately hoping we don't ask you about today? And we're at a restaurant, and people are like laying out there like, oh, like, oh, this is my junk, this is my ugliness, this is my... And like, we don't judge, and we're just listening, and we're encouraging and supporting, and often forget, and just, it's like, what is... And we go around, and everyone shares their deepest, like, worst things about ourselves, and we feel better for it, because it's out there now. Someone knows, and we can be forgiven, and... And then the second question happens, which is far worse than the first one. The second question is... What did you just lie about? (laughs) No kidding, that's what we ask each other. And it's ugly. Just so you know, the staff, the pastors, the staff together, I mean, we have so many checks and balances, it should be impossible. But beyond that, there's a true community among this team. I mean, we walk into each other's offices all the time and say, I need a personal moment, I just need to tell you something. And we pray for each other, we forgive each other. Paula, for, you know, forgives me for stealing all her cool stuff out of her swag bags. <laughs> Whatever happened to Judas, it must have been in isolation. Students, there's a lesson here. You can walk with giants. But if you hold things in secret, if you hold things by yourself, if you're not in community, if no one knows, you open yourself to walking the path of Judas. And that goes for the rest of us adults too. Those of us who do church, those of us who know the ways of faith, and yet internally we cherish that which is dark and ugly, and no one knows. Something must have happened between Judas and Jesus. It's, I cannot believe that Judas would start his descent away from Jesus purely based on a financial disagreement. Something must have happened. I find it odd that Scripture doesn't tell us what it is. And yet, it kind of makes sense. Like, we'd be so tempted to say, like, oh, but we're not going to do the Judas. I'm not going to do the Judas path. I'm going to do the Jonathan path, which is equally as sinful, but it's not Judas, so I'm okay. But when it's ambiguous, and I don't know what that is. I'm just going to be afraid of everything. (laughs) I'm going to stick to Jesus because I don't know if I'm away from Jesus, bad things could happen. We have to be in true Christian community. If you're not in a small group, if you're not in an accountability group, if you're not on a serving team somewhere, then by all means, come to that newcomer's lunch today, get plugged in, find one of the pastors, find an elder deacon, join a team, serve somehow. Anything, just don't be out there alone. Verse 3, right after verse 2, right after Satan prompts Judas, here's Christ's response in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, 
And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was around him. Had you asked me a few months ago, Jonathan, is the gospel message inside the foot washing thing? Uh, is the gospel message inside the foot washing passage? True or false? Uh, I'm going to say there are gospel elements in there, but is it the gospel? Uh, not the whole thing, so you know, no. I was wrong. I was teaching this passage to the students uh, a couple weeks ago, and this thought struck me. And it's one of those things where maybe I knew this before and I forgot it, but it feels, I just can't get my head around it. Have you ever, think of this through your, and you know, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I, I do my best, but have you ever heard that phrase or heard the foot washing ceremony described anywhere where the person wraps the towel around their waist? I searched, I went through all of my textbooks, I was looking for first century foot washing practices, I was deep inside commentaries. I, I, it doesn't make sense. I think it might be unique about Jesus. Okay, if I'm wrong, just imagine that it, you know, that it is unique to Jesus. Um, but I think he's the only one who did that. I do know that the task was so lowly, you could not ask a Jewish slave to wash people's feet. You could ask a Gentile slave, but you couldn't ask a Jewish person, let alone a Jewish rabbi, to do it. So, not to be too middle school again, but let's just imagine this for a second. This is first century, you're out in the streets, this is not like concrete and paved roads, correct? You are wearing sandals, you, there, is a, there is no like people pathway and camel pathway, like it's all just one pathway, right? Like you're just walking and camels do what they do, and you just have to step around it, and you don't have closed-toed shoes, and it's wet, it's muddy, it's all just mixed in there. You're walking through this stuff. You go to someone's house, and so you would wash, a servant would wash their feet. But it's not like we have like soap and Brillo pads and like hoses, and they just had a basin and they just poured water over the feet. It's really the towel. The water, and then you wiped the feet. So all the filth that was on the disciples' feet is now on this towel that Jesus is wearing on his body. Tell me that's not the gospel message. That all the filth that we have is taken from us, and he wears it on him. I can't get my head around that image. Because Judas is there among the 12, and Jesus is washing his feet. And by now, Jesus knows exactly what is going through Judas's mind. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows the sequence. He knows what's going to happen, and he's still doing it. So here's the question. Turn to your neighbor. What do you think Judas was thinking about when Jesus was washing his feet? I'm fascinated by that. What was Judas thinking about when Jesus was washing his feet? Turn to your neighbor, take 30 seconds.
And bring it back. I want you to imagine this scene, whatever it looks like in your mind's eye. There's a dinner, there's the 12, there's Jesus, there's Judas. Do you think Judas was like angry, just like simmering, just like vibrating with frustration? Or do you think he was like, was he still like trying to make up his mind? Was he just solid? I know what I'm gonna do, I'm just, but I'm gonna like blank face, I'm just gonna like be a spy here. Like a lot depends on how you think of Judas in this passage, but I find it fascinating. I mean, when we taught it to children, it's, just, it's on the page, it's so clear. He said this, he did this, clearly he was like Judas, but he was just a normal guy. He was just like us. I'm fascinated by how Jesus was responding to him. So in that same dinner, the passage goes on, John 13, chapter Chapter 13, verse 21. It says, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And so he said out loud, he testified, guys, I say to you, my brothers, I say to you, my loved ones, my sons, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Did he say that angrily? Did he say it softly? Did he, was he in tears? Was he accusing? Was he wounded? I, I, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant, which meant that Judas was not vibrating in anger. It means that it was not obvious. It's not like the disciples all pointed at him like, we know who it is, Jesus. Like, there was no clue. No calling out, no throwing him under the bus. Like, they had no idea. So one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus, and so Simon Peter motioned to him and said, ask him which one he means. (laughs) Because, you know, Peter can't ask himself, right? So, verse 25, so John, the one that Jesus loved, was leaning back against Jesus. So he's close enough to touch Jesus, he's close enough to recline next to Jesus, which means in the order of the table, Jesus is at the head, and if John is able to recline on him, then he has a seat of honor. He is close enough to Jesus to touch him. So John reclines against his Lord and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. You can imagine all the disciples' eyes are just like riveted on this piece of bread. Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. A couple of the Jewish commentaries I was reading, and they were odd because it was Jewish, I find it fascinating. Because it it doesn't say that Jesus had to get up and go over across the table to give the bread to Judas. It says he dipped the bread and gave to him. So first of all, when the host hand dips the bread and hands it to you, you are the honored guest. That is the symbol of saying you are the number one guest of my house. And that, Judas, that Jesus did not have to give up meant that Judas was right there. So Judas is getting double honors at the Last Supper. He's in the position of honor. He's getting the hand gift from Jesus. What does that say to us? 
Jesus knew who his betrayer was, and he still gave him double honors. Some of us have sins so deep and so long habitual, we feel like we're far from God. I hear this from my college students all the time. Jonathan, you don't know what I did. You don't, you don't know what, you wouldn't like me. You don't, you don't know what I did. And yet from this passage, we know exactly Jesus, if there's a distance between you and God, it's not from God. Jesus is like hanging on for dear life to you and saying, sit here with me. I'm going to give you not only honor, but I'm going to give you double honor. I'm going to love you all the way to the end. And in every translation I chose, could you put up verse 27? In every translation I checked, in every book I read, in every version I read, the scripture is very clear. It always goes like this, verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread. Or in some translations, after Jesus took the bread. It's very clear, Judas had to act first. When you look at the verb tenses, when you look at the precise wording, Judas is not the passive person here. He's not Satan is not the active agent. It is Judas who is the active agent. It is Judas who had every opportunity to turn. It is Judas who said, I allow you, I wish for you to do this. It's like Scripture is trying to say at every single moment Jesus was hanging on and saying, come on, brother, don't do this. And yet there's a part of me that's like, but wait a minute, we needed... (laughs) We needed Judas to do what he did so that Jesus would be betrayed, so that he would go to the cross to save me. Otherwise, if Judas didn't do what he did, then Jesus wouldn't have hung on the cross, and then I would never be saved. So, and yet we assume, come on, sin was everywhere. If Judas didn't do it, if Judas had had repented and turned, it was God's intention to save us. Nothing was going to stop that. It's just that Judas chose to let it be through him. And that drives me crazy. This man walked among the disciples. This man was a disciple in every sense of the way. This man cast out demons. This man raised the dead. This man healed people. This man preached the message. This man brought so many thousands to God. Given all that he had done, so frustrating to And then as soon as I feel that, I feel like God turns the mirror back on me and says, Jonathan, how much have you been given? How much have you been blessed? How many people do you have to love and who love you? Why do you do the stupid things you do? I don't know. Judas did it first. (laughs) It is wrong for us to point at Judas and say, traitor, betrayer unless we include ourselves. And God is giving us every chance. And God is giving us double honor to turn. I thought about addressing the whole complicated issue of foreknowledge and predestination 
that'd be a really fun sermon to do for Eddie or someone, or maybe like one of the Sunday teachers to do, because I'm out of time and I just don't have time to do it right now. What a fascinating discussion. Did Judas have a choice? Was it predestined? Or does God's foreknowledge mean a predestination? Like if, go ahead and Google those and look it up and have great studies and talk to your Sunday school, <laughs> talk to your Sunday adult, talk to Pastor Paula. We just don't have time to deal with that today. Oh, so sorry. Um, In the end, I cannot figure out why we in Christianity are so quick to label Judas. When you, on your worship guide, there's a bunch of study questions and go home and talk about it with your family or in your classes or small groups or accountability groups or servant groups, wherever, talk about them with someone. But the end is fascinating to me. Did Judas repent? Will we ever see him again. Did Jesus? What was it like for? Because however Jesus is with Judas is how Jesus is with us. We are the same. So by all means, I'm going to (laughs) hope. And the thing is, though, I know what Judas did, and if I do the same thing, then how dumb am I? Why didn't he allow Jesus to rescue him? Why didn't he turn to one of his brothers and say, I need help? Why did he turn to someone and say, I'm in trouble? Why did he walk alone? Why did he hide? This generation, students, you worship at what I like to call the idol of the awkward. If it's awkward, you won't do it until I ask you, what's the thing you don't want me to ask you about? And then we're going to have some fun conversations. Um, Building true community is awkward. It is tough. It is hard. And I don't know if Judas had it, but we must. We have to. What can we do to build a sort of community where Judas could have come clean and been forgiven and restored? Do we have that kind of community in the various pathways groups? What can we do to help the students and the others among us who have been raised in the church, who know the ways of the church, and yet who willfully, internally remain strangers with Jesus. How do we help them? By the way, if this is you, if you feel like Jesus is poking at you, and you feel like, by no means, I'm not going to leave this building until someone hears me, then after service, be here in the front. The elders will keep watch. They'll come join you. They'll talk with you, Pastor Paula, and I will be here. People will be here. Your host will be here. The camera guys will be here. We will be here to help you talk about Jesus if you want to talk about Jesus. If you feel like you want to turn your relationship today, then don't wait. Don't walk alone. All I know for sure in studying Judas is how grateful I am that we have a Christ who loves us, who died for us, who gives us double honor, who gives us every chance, 
who promises us that no matter what we do, that we are already forgiven. I'm fascinated by who the depth of Jesus' love. I can't get that horrible thought of my head of him wearing that towel that has my filth on it, and it haunts me. And I'm so grateful for forgiveness. And I'm so grateful that we get to be together so that I can say to you, I need help. Pray for me and walk with me. Let us do this for each other, yes? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I try to imagine what your face looked like and what your emotions and especially what your eyes looked like when you looked at Judas. And I never want to see that look personally. I think you were in pain every time. I think you loved him fully and thoroughly and deeply, just as you love us. God, we are so grateful. Thank you so much for community, for fellowship, for your salvation, for your knowing us intimately, for your walking with us, for your begging us, for not letting us go, for just being the God who says, you are mine and I am yours and nothing is ever going to change that. And all the people of God said, 